The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, Isaiah chapter 9 is where we are this morning. We are walking typically through the book of Luke at this point, but we've paused starting today for this week and the next three weeks to do a season on Advent. Um, Our desire is that for each of us, this would be a real um, holiday season of honestly just revival, of not going through the motions, but of of understanding and, and pause and reflection. And so that's the goal of what we're doing here. And so as a result, today we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Um, before we dive into the Word, though, I have a little bit of a poll. I'd like to find out the mood. I, I want to know what kind of people I'm dealing with here, okay? So if you're in this room um, and you are a Christmas music should be able to play all year long person, would you raise your hand, please? There's a few of you, yeah. So you guys, as your lights are up, they've been up, right? You're like, if anything worth that, if it takes that much work, it's going up early and we're going to enjoy them, Right? Which is probably why you leave them up till June too. But yeah, all right, cool. Um, how many of you are, I'm down with Christmas, but we need to honor Thanksgiving first. How many of, of you are in here? Yeah? I'm on your team, just so you know. But okay. And how many of you are like, hey, we have a calendar for a reason. December is Christmas month. December 1st, let it ring. How many of you in, in there? There's a few calendar people in here. More than first service. Awesome. Okay, good to know. Well, here's the good news. It is post-Thanksgiving, and we are now in December, so everyone needs to be on board with Christmas at this point. Amen? Like, if you've been sitting back begrudgingly, like, oh, they've had the decorations out since October at Costco, or, oh, my neighbor's already doing this, or why are you singing Christmas songs, and I can't stand when adults wear Santa hats to work, whatever the case may be, wherever you are in that, it is now okay to set all of that aside, and everyone is on board. Amen? It is Christmas season, and if you're not fully on board yet in your heart, like you want to get there, but you need that little transition, I have some really good news for you. I'm going to help you. This might, of anything, I'm going to tell you, you might want to write this down, okay? www.christmastvschedule.com www.christmastvschedule.com It will give you a day-by-day rundown of all the holiday movies that we've grown up with and that we know and love and when they're playing and on what television channel. And look, I know they're on YouTube. I know they're on YouTube. That's cheating. Don't watch them streaming. Kids need to watch it the same way we watched it. Our kids today don't understand the reality and the pressure of being in the bathroom and hearing, it's coming back on at the commercial break. You know what I mean? Like that was an anxiety attack, like crazy. Like that is pressure right there, right? And, and part of the joy is like you're flipping through the channels and you see <gasps> Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is on tonight and Burl Ives and the whole deal. So www dot christmas tv schedule dot com just to highlight a few things you might want to be aware of today since it's late notice for some of you uh three fifteen or no three o'clock and five fifteen today is christmas vacation for the silly people um on on amc also on amc and by the way if you don't have amc i don't know what you're going to do because amc is apparently where all the holiday hangouts are this year but on amc tomorrow night is like the whole santa claus series with tim allen is tomorrow night claus with an e that one you know what i'm talking about um but this one's important today it's the best of the best it's today at 145 this is the best of all of them and it is of course everyone knows the year without santa claus 
And you're like, I don't remember that one. Fellas, show them. It's this one. <laughs> remember this one? You guys remember this one? Heat miser and snow miser? Oh, it's the best. It's beautifully creepy all at the same time. Like, who are the little minions of these dudes? And they do their song. Dun, 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 dun. You know that one? I won't sing it for you. I might. I, no, I won't. I won't. This is, a, it's the greatest. It's on today at 1.45 p.m. So eat lunch quick and everyone rush home and make sure that you have AMC or at least get an app out and if you have to TiVo it, okay, but at least let the commercials run, okay? So that, that's what's going on. Now, as you're watching all these movies, as you're experiencing all of this Christmas stuff, I want you to notice something. You will find, if your eyes are open for it, theology, active, applicable theology in all sorts of normal settings, and these movies are not above it. In fact, it shines in these movies whether people realize it or not. Here's what you'll see. I don't care what you're watching. I don't care if it's Buddy the Elf looking for dad. I don't care if it's Red Rider BB gun. I, I don't care what the story, the Grinch, the Scrooge, whatever it is. In all of them, there's a pattern that is exactly the same. And that pattern is from darkness to light. In every movie, from darkness to light, or from chaos to peace, or from disorder and brokenness to wholeness. It's in every movie. It's in every one of those things. That is the theme that is constantly being pumped out throughout the entire holiday season. And we all love it. Amen? We love it. We totally love it. And, and listen, even in like advertising and marketing, you're going to see the exact same thing happening, but, but it's even like a hyper-realized version of it about how in this season, all our hopes and dreams can finally come true. Like somebody, apparently, according to commercials I see, wakes up on Christmas morning with a Lexus in the driveway and a big red bow. This will be my 46th Christmas. I have never, ever seen that happen before, but apparently it happens because it's in the commercials every year, and I don't even question it. It's just there, like, yeah, Christmas, I'm down. Or, or what's, what's the other one? Somebody's going to Jared, right? <laughs> apparently, a lot of people are going to Jared, right? I'd go to Jared, honey, but we don't have one in Medford. That's not a good cop-out, is it? But Jared, diamonds, all this, or just think, like, all the promotions of, like, it, it doesn't matter about your family squabbles. It doesn't matter about the different things that might be going on or the chaos of the season. All of us have this picture in mind that's like this hyper-realized version where everyone's arm-in-arm arm curving the perfect golden turkey at the end of Christmas. Like, that is part of that season. Even though reality might be far, far from that, that is kind of what's on the heart and mind of everybody that's here. That idea of dark to light chaos to order, um, messes to peace and wholeness. And we love it. We love it. Don't we love it? Like it has a feeling. Does it not have a real feeling this season? And we like it. That's why some of you guys are backing Christmas up into like October because you want to ride that feeling out. When you hear those songs, the nostalgia that kicks in, there's a warmness to it. It's awesome. Is it not? But think about where we're celebrating this. We celebrate in winter which is what? Dark. It's dark. You know what time it's getting dark today? 4.38. Everybody go, ugh. 4.38, it's getting dark. The leaves are gone. 
The flowers are gone. It's cold. It's rainy. It's dark. It's honestly not a season characterized by life and order. It's really more characterized by darkness and even, you might say, death. That's when we celebrate all this. And we celebrate it with what? Lights and green trees and all of this sort of stuff, bringing it into our home because it's too cold to have it outside the home. But that's what we're celebrating. Why? What is all that? What's going on? And, and here's the sad reality. It's great. Please, I'm not Mr. Scrooge here. It's awesome. But listen, here's the sad reality. For all the movies, for all the stories, for all the family traditions, for all the meals, for all the gifts, for all of that, there will come a moment on Christmas Day when all those festivities end And you'll realize, and maybe just for a moment, maybe you won't even pay attention to it, though you might now that I'm talking about it. There'll be a moment where you go, was that it? It's over? And then we have what? January. And February. Blah. (laughs) Right? We don't start talking hope again until Easter. What is all that? There is a deep longing inside the heart and soul of every single person here and every single person out there that will never be satisfied no matter what happens in your home on Christmas morning. It won't be enough. My, my grandmother, she used to pronounce every year um, at a certain point on Christmas Day, she would go in her North Carolina accent, she would go, well, it's over. And she took Christmas decorations down that day she would take christmas decorations down christmas night they were gone it's over what's the point after this and we would laugh about it and everything but there's a certain sadness yet a very real reality to that that for all and this is the best of us right the christmas holiday season it's the best of us it's when we we give the most It's when we get together with family the most. It's when we try to show love the most. I mean, this is the best of us. And at the end, there will be a level of (sighs) emptiness, shallowness maybe, um, something still in our hearts that's longing for something that all the promises of that holiday didn't quite fulfill. But I'm not saying that to put a damper on it. I'm saying that so that you can notice it because the reality is that those things are pointing to something that can. And that's what Easter is all about. No, that's what Christmas is all about. So I'm never going to get called to do any uh, uh, Burl Ives movies now if I'm calling it Easter. But that's what it's all about. And so this year, what we're trying to do is we've paused our Luke study to do an Advent series. How many of you, uh, we did this before, but how many of you grew up or have attended a church and done Advent before um, as a church or as a family? There's several of you, okay? Now, how many of you accurately and deeply know what that even means? way less hands go up, right? Because it's just tradition, something we do. It's a churchy sounding word, so we don't know what it means. So here's our hope for you here at the church is that in doing this Advent series this year that we can talk about the reality of what's going on and that we can see through just the facade of things to understand the reality behind them, that that's where our hope can be put. And so that this can be a season where there's like actual deep personal revival 
in all of this. That even the songs that you sing, which we will close the service by singing one in a little while. Uh, I experienced this in the first service and, and I taught this message, but yet going through this and then seeing that song at the end, it was moving because suddenly words that we're all used to, you go, oh, now I'm really focused in on the reality that's behind what's going on here. And there can become a real depth and and it becomes very moving. And that's what we want for you guys this holiday season. We want this to be one of those holidays where it's just like, man, I get it. Amen, church? So we're doing that with Advent. So what is Advent? Advent, it's just a word, a Greek word or the Latin word, excuse me, original word is Adventus. And it means this, it means coming. It means coming. Um, Webster defines it as the arrival of a notable person, a notable thing, or a notable event. And, And you know this because think of it. Like we would say, since the advent of television, there's never been a better movie than The Year Without Santa Claus. Right? So what are we saying when we say that? Since television broke into the scene and the era of TV began, since TV arrived, da 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 Since the advent of the internet, People have been cheating on Christmas movies and watching them on YouTube. You know, like that's what we're talking about, the coming of something. So Advent is speaking about the coming of Jesus Christ. In Christian history, Advent is considered the first season of the church year. And it's set aside to do two things. It's to reflect on the first coming of Jesus, but also to anticipate the second coming of Jesus. So it's this idea of considering the realities of where was Israel, what was going on at the time that Jesus came and that the promises concerning Jesus came. And then now knowing where we are in our culture today, what are the similarities and how can we look back on that to gain hope and conviction for the promises that God has given us in our current situation that Jesus is coming again. Does that make sense? So Advent is reflection, but it's also eschatological, if you like church words. It's, it's, it has a future aspect that is anticipating the soon return of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that they do that, historically, is through lighting Advent candles. Some of you guys have seen Advent candles before. So the way it works is in the service, someone will light one Advent candle each week. There's four candles for the four Sundays of Advent. And then at the Christmas Eve or the Christmas service, depending on the, chur- on the, the church, ours will be Christmas Eve this year, um, there'll be another candle in the middle, and that is, if you will, the Christ candle. That's the one that you light on the last day that's like, hey, all of this hope we've been talking about for four days, now Christ has come. And the symbolism in it is actually really powerful. Um, so if you come to our service this year, and I want to encourage you to, you don't want to miss it out. We've got some cool stuff planned for you guys. Um, but on that service, what we will usually do is once the, the Christ candle is lit, we have a few children come up, and they come up with their candles, right? We light them off of the Christ candle, and then those children carry that light out to the rest of the people and begin to share the light, and you see the light spreading. Well, the symbolism in that is huge, that Jesus Christ has come, that he's put his spirit, his life in us. And then as we spread the gospel and as the people of God spread throughout a dark world, that light is traveling with it. It's actually a pretty cool thing. And, and, and it's important for us to be able to, in seasons like this, understand the symbolism and understand what's going on behind them so it doesn't just become vain religion or tradition. Does that make sense? 
So that's what Advent's about. So for the next four weeks, that's what we're going going to be doing. We're going to be walking a trajectory towards a culmination at our Christmas Eve service that's going to be big and festive, and we've got some extra stuff planned that we've never done before, and we're really excited. So I want to encourage you guys, try to track with us, be a part of all this. It's going to be worth it, okay? But here's the deal. As festive and great, lights, all that kind of stuff, to understand the glory of lights and be able to um, appreciate why they're there and why it's such a big deal, you have to understand the reality of the darkness, do you not? And that's what Isaiah does. Isaiah 9 verse 1 starts and says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Okay, let's understand some history here, what's happening. Um, God is talking through the prophet Isaiah to the people of Israel. And in this specific case, he's talking about the people of northern Israel in the area of Galilee. That's the area that he's talking about. It's north of Jerusalem. Now, that was not a happy place, especially at this particular point in time. If you come with us to Israel now, you go there, and it's actually really green, really pretty. The Sea of Galilee's there. We actually stay one night in like a resort-ish kind of place right on the Sea of Galilee. Galilee, we go out on a boat on it. It's awesome. Um, back then, not a happy place whatsoever. And there's some truth to that even still today. And here's why. In that day, if an invading army wanted to come in, there were some very significant geographical issues regarding Israel. And Israel, as we know, invading armies came in how often? All the time. Israel had war constantly, right? And so geographically, if you're an invading army, you always came in from the north because on the west side is the ocean, on the east is mountains, and to the south of Jerusalem is even more rugged mountains and vast desert. But to the north, green, lush, rolling hills, vegetation, water, food, all of those things are readily available. So if you lived in Galilee, if you're part of those villages, your historical experience is characterized by things like enemy sieges, where armies coming in from the north that were headed in to try to take over Jerusalem would lay siege to your land, rape and pillage your villages and your people there, um, camp there for who knows how long as they built up their attack to go into Jerusalem and wipe everything out. And even if Jerusalem withheld, even if the enemy was vanquished, it was still the same sort of darkness and difficulty on the way out. Because the only thing worse than an invading enemy soldier coming in is an angry, defeated enemy soldier who's retreating out. So on the way back out, historically, that would happen over and over and over again. To this day, you see some of that. You see that when Israel uh, goes through things like, for example, rocket attacks, it's often in the north. I would say it's usually in the northern part of Israel because of Lebanon, where Gaza, or excuse me, where um, Hamas is in the northern area, where Syria is up there, which we don't even need to go into all that. It is a war-torn area for sure. 
Um, when we went to Israel, we actually convinced our uh, tour guide and bus driver, and I know this won't really sell our trips on any of you guys probably, but we convinced our bus driver to drive us up on this hill and go up to this one area where we could overlook this bluff and see out into the land of Syria. And we would see along the way buildings that are rattled with bullet holes everywhere. Um, their, their experience, though it didn't happen while we were there, thank goodness, um, the number of air raid sirens because of rocket attacks from the north in that area, it's just an everyday common part of life. Much more so then much darker then because at the same time that Isaiah here is writing this about the people of Israel, Israel is not its own kingdom at the moment. Um, The glory days of King David, the glory days of King Solomon, that is long gone now. And there is now an Assyrian king who's in charge. There'll be a string of Assyrian kings who are in charge. And these men were brutal, ungodly, oppressive men. Then add to that some of the things that just Isaiah says is still coming. I mean, when you read through this, you see that Isaiah says, Israel, there's, there's as bad as things are now and as bad as your history is, there's some bad things coming. Um, you're going to be brushed off of your land by enemy armies. You're going to be taken off to live in exile. Some of you are going to be taken off and you're going to live as slaves in other countries. There's going to be really difficult time coming. So when Isaiah says here, He talks about gloom, he talks about anguish, about deep darkness, this area of Galilee. He's talking to people who have been beat up and taken advantage of throughout history. And they're they're over it, right? I mean, wouldn't you be? And so here comes Isaiah, and he's like, guys, the darkness, oh, a light has shone. Something's happened Something's changed. Now, he's talking about a future promise, but he's writing in sort of a poetic manner, but with such a confidence about it that he's writing as if it's already happened. It's to emphasize the certainty of it, to say, this is true. And he says, guys, listen, a light has broke forth. Man, you are not going to walk in darkness anymore. You're not going to be, de- you're not going to deal with any of that stuff anymore. Trust me, all that history you have, all that difficulty, all that stuff, as bad as it is, and as bad as it's going to get, there's hope. And he goes on to say this. Look at uh, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. So think about it. Agricultural area, Invading armies all the time coming and taking a spoil from the things that are there. Well, he's saying now, hey, your harvest is not going to be messed with anymore. And instead of people taking a spoil from you, you are going to be dividing a spoil. That would sound completely foreign to what they're dealing with at this particular time. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So put yourself in the place of a Galilean hearing this. The invaders are going to be wiped out. It's going to be their blood and their garments set on fire. 
we'll be dividing spoils. We won't be oppressed anymore. We won't be beat down. We're not going to walk in darkness. We're going to walk in light. Yes, I am down. That's not gloom. That's glory. I want to do this. How do we do this? How's it going to go down? Isaiah, tell me. Okay, it's going to go down like this. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born. For to us a son is given. Pause. If that was me, I'm a little disappointed. I'm not going to lie. If that's me, something's happened. Light has shown. Things are going to change. Yeah, this is what's going to happen. Oh, it's awesome. How, when? Wow. Okay, so a, a baby was born. Okay, I would at least start doing some math right there. Okay. Okay, so if he does this, if there's some baby super warrior or something that's coming that's going to like uh, this Messiah we're waiting on, if he's born, when does he start doing this? Is it 18? No, that's more like a U.S. age that we look at adulthood. Is it 30? That's when David did his stuff. Whatever the case may be, I'm looking at still years of this. It's a hope, but it seems like a faint hope. It seems like, a, like is this really what it is? That's not what I want. What I want to hear is, hey, great news. The yoke has been broken. Things are going to be awesome. Really? How? What happened? We have tanks. That's what I want to hear. We have missiles. There is a scientist in Jerusalem that has new inventions and Israel will never have to deal with this again. Whatever the case may be, I want the baby. Is that the answer to my problems? Baby? When that's my history? But here's the deal. As bad as things were for people living in that area at that time, politically, geographically, historically, Isaiah knows, and more importantly, God knows, that the biggest problem that they face by far is much darker than an invading army from the north. The underlying issue that even results in the existence of enemy armies is something much darker and much more pervasive that needs a very specific answer or remedy. In fact, there's only one remedy. And to understand that, you have to go back to Genesis. Now, Anyone who knows me knows that I love going back to the book of Genesis, and I do. But I'm off the hook on this one because this is the kind of thing that Isaiah does. Because Isaiah's prophecies cover, it's sort of an Advent-style book because he looks to the past and builds hope to the future and understanding for the future. So will you guys do me a favor? Stay, in, like, put a finger or bulletin or something like that here in Isaiah 9 and turn to Genesis 3 and look at something with me. First book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. In my Bible, it's like, uh, I don't know, inch and a quarter to the left. If you got a ribbon, throw that thing into use. Okay, so in Genesis, we see this story of creation, the reality of the fact that God created heaven and earth. And I want you to understand something about creation that happened in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, something about its, its makeup, its nature, like what was really going on there. The Jews used the word peace or shalom. Now for us, we would view the word peace very much like maybe someone in that northern region would say, we're tired of war, we're tired of fights, we're tired of kids arguing over this, we just want peace this holiday season. And they, that means just absence of conflict. Um, but in the Bible, it means infinitely more than that. And you can really understand it best by thinking about relationships in three different ways in the Garden of Eden. Some of you have heard me do this before, but it's really important to understand, okay? So 
when God created heaven and earth, when God created Adam and Eve, when God created the animals, when God created the environment, he did it with total shalom, and shalom has three different elements to it. Number one, it means harmony between God and man. So Adam had perfect harmony with God. Eve had perfect harmony with God. They were partners in God's ongoing creation. We often say that that Eden was like this perfect paradise, and it was, if you mean without flaw, but it wasn't perfect in terms of complete. Um, It was undeveloped. And God, in partnership with Adam and Eve, was working with them to continue that creative process. That's why Adam was given dominion over animals and over, over the ground. He was going to build gardens. He was going to build families. He was going to build society. They were going to build something together. God had partnered with Adam and Eve to continue that ongoing process that he had started on day one. And their relationships were perfect. There was no sin. There was no hiding. It was, it was perfect harmony and fellowship. There was also harmony in relationship between man and man, or in this case, man and woman, Adam and Eve. They were naked and they were unashamed, the Bible says. And that's not speaking so much about nudity necessarily. It's talking more about shame and about honesty and about fear. Meaning this, they had nothing to hide from one another about. Can you even imagine living like that? I know Pastor Jeremy did some work on that this weekend in our our workshop on on shame, the shameless workshop, but just think about that. Like, they had no need to ever consider what clothing they chose for the day because maybe they would not look as good for the other person and maybe they would have shame over something. There was no concept of any of that. There was no anything to hide from someone relationally one from another. There was no putting on faces and we, man, we do this, right? Church, like argue on the way to church and then put on our facade. We hide even our own relational shame within our own marriages amongst other people in the church as we come to church because we, though we all know that we go through some of those difficulties, we're still, there's a shame associated with them. And we come into church where we think everything's supposed to be like Eden and perfect. And so we hide it and we come in. Just imagine There is nothing you would ever feel fear or shame about in dealing with another human being anywhere on earth. I can't even imagine what that would be like. That's the kind of harmony that they had. And then there was harmony between God and environment, God and creation. The animals were subject to Adam. He's naming them. There were no sharks eating surfers off the coast. There were no black widows terrifying us in the corner. I don't think there were any black widows, period. I think that's evidence of the fall. I think all of those things were gone, right? There was harmony. And, and, and even in that, Adam, who's a gardener, essentially, like he, the, the ground worked with him. There were no thorns. There was no thistles. There was no blackberry bushes. There was none of that stuff. It, it was compliant with him. And then what happens? The snake comes. God had given them a rule. There's the tree of life and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of the tree of life and every other tree, you can eat freely. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat of that because surely you will die. And the snake comes up and says, is that what God really said? That you're really going to die? You think he really meant that? Think he would create you guys? You're the only ones like you. You think he's going to let you die? Surely you're more important than that. Maybe God's actually holding out on you because he knows there's something about that tree 
And you know what? If you had that, you wouldn't have to be under him anymore. He's trying to keep you down. You could be like him. You could be just like God, not answering to him. You can be one yourself. It's the same itch we all fight scratching. This idea of self-rule, call our own shots, be in charge, make everything about us. We all fight that still to this day. So if we ever look back at Adam and Eve and think, I can't believe they blew it, you got to understand it's the same battles. We fail constantly. We would not have done any better. And so they take of the fruit, everything's fractured. The harmony between man and God is broken. Adam's hiding from God. God's going, where are you? The harmony between man and woman is broken. No longer are they naked and unashamed. Now they're taking leaves and trying to cover up around one another. And, and, and not only that, once God does show up, once they are before God, the finger pointing starts and it's going to lead to the fact that their firstborn or their first set of kids, one's going to kill the other. That harmony is long gone. And then there's this fracture of harmony between man and creation. Now, the ground's not going to be so compliant anymore, Adam. God tells him, you're going to work by the sweat of your brow. There's going to be thorns. There's going to be thistles. Animals are afraid of us to this day because of that. Things are no longer compliant. Now things work against us. They're against us. And yet, in the middle of that darkness, and just imagine, just, just think for a second about this. Adam and Eve in front of God. And this is all their fault. They did this. What would you expect God to say to you? I know from my upbringing, my expectation would be something like, you're going to pay for this. This is your fault, and you're going to pay for this. But I want you to look. In Genesis 3.15, it's called the Proto-Evangelium. It means the first gospel. Look what God says. And actually start in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go, and the dust you shall eat all of the days of your life. Let's just be honest. Like, is there a more feared or disliked animal on the face of the earth than snakes? Probably not. I think spiders should be up there personally, but I think spiders are just snakes that haven't lost their legs yet, so they're kind of the same no matter what. In fact, they somehow got extra ones. But um, even in Africa, when we were in Africa this last time, we found a cobra. An actual cobra, not in a zoo, a crawling around cobra. And it was just like, some of you got that just by me telling you just now, right? So this is true, this idea. And look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Any ladies who hate snakes, say amen. I know that's true. And between your offspring and her offspring, this is the important part. And then look, speaking about her offspring, he says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's saying, Satan, there's an offspring coming from her, and one day, though he's going to be bruised on his foot, he will crush your skull. And I don't believe God said that with a smile on his face, all happy-like. I believe God said it promising vengeance and justice. I don't believe God was indifferent to all the brokenness that had just taken place. And I believe when he looked at that serpent in that moment, he was saying, you're gonna pay. Your day will end and my son will crush you. 
I don't know about you, that makes me feel good to think about. Imagine Adam hearing that, because I would think he would say it to me. Jeff, you're going to pay. Do you see everything I made that you just broke? God is good. Amen? So there's this little promise that comes in the middle of this darkness, in the middle of all of this. And, and this, this, this idea that one day things are going to be better. That now that everything's broken and it's not even in its best, even on Christmas morning, as great as Christmas morning is, well, to quote the Robert Frost poem that you know probably from the movie The Outsiders, right? Nothing gold can stay. It doesn't last. Nothing glorious lasts anymore. But one day, oh, snake, one day you are toast because there's one coming you can't handle. There's one coming that's going to crush you. That's the promise that is made. And Isaiah 9 is telling us that that day is coming, that this is the offspring. This is the child that's going to be born. And I want you to look at Isaiah 9. Go back to Isaiah 9 now. We're done with Genesis. Look at some of the information he gives us about him. Verse 6. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. What, by the way, just quick little pause. Who's not looking forward to the day that the government is on Jesus' shoulder and we can just give up with all the other ones for goodness sakes? Amen? But this is what he's saying. His hands went up. I'm with you on that. <laughs> Preach. Anyway. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And then a big one drops in like a bomb right here. The next name is what? Mighty God. What he's saying is this. This isn't just a baby. I'm coming. I'm coming myself. Earlier I said there would be a baby and this would be in Isaiah 9. There's a promise. And you'll name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. But this is the first declaration that's saying, no, 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 it's not just named Emmanuel. It is Emmanuel. This baby is mighty God. Don't look at this, Jeff. Don't look at this Galilee and think, we needed tanks, you're sending us a baby. This ain't just some baby. This is God who's coming. This is hope that's coming. It goes on to say, he will be everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. And then this is such a great verse right here. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, and he's excited to come. He's pumped. And God does not get disappointed. His plans come through. He's pumped about this. He's coming. This is what he's going to do. And you go, oh, okay, that's bigger than I thought. How's he going to do this? How's this baby that comes going to do this? Go to Isaiah 53, just a 16th of an inch or so to the right. And let's read Isaiah 53. Worship band, you guys can start making your way back up here now. Isaiah 53.1 says this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And who, to who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root 
out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. That he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Church, who's his offspring? We are. It says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, that's Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And then look, so sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations." And will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood will remember you, will rem- you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. We could go on and on and on. What a passage. This baby is God himself. And he's coming the first time to deal with a much bigger problem than an invading army or political unrest. He's coming to deal with the sin that every one of us deals with. That is the root of all of those difficulties. And what does Isaiah 53 tell us he's going to do? He's going to take on flesh. He's going to walk among us. He's going to take on our sins and transgressions. He's going to make atonement for our rebellion against God. 
He's going to grant us a righteousness that's not our own, but that is his. And then even think about it later in the book of Colossians. What does it say that Jesus did on the cross? It says that he moved us from the domain of what? Darkness into the kingdom of what? Light. It's darkness to light. It's what everything in every movie you watch this whole holiday season, whether they know it or not, that's the thing they're anticipating and pointing to. That's what's happening in the holiday season. And I'm here to tell you that that Savior is without question. It is Jesus Christ himself. And without him, we are hopeless. You are completely powerless to crush the head of the snake on your own. I don't care how much you're doing CrossFit. I don't care what essential oils you have in your cabinet. You go up against Satan, you're going to lose. Only Jesus Christ can do that. We cannot usher in peace on earth. This is the 100-year anniversary of the end of World War I. I don't know if you guys knew that. Do you remember what they called World War I? The war to what? End all wars. Oops. It didn't even end war with Germany. Much less Japan, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Russia, etc., etc., etc. We have no hope at ushering peace in on our own. It is absolutely impossible. But without Jesus Christ, there is no hope. But this Christmas, what we celebrate, this Advent season, what we are celebrating is, number one, God keeps his promises. He says, I'm putting it all back together again. One day, Buddy the Elf will be with his dad and have Christmas dinner and sleep in a bed that fits him. One day, you will get your Red Rider BB gun. One day, all of those things are going to be true. All of that is true because God keeps his promises. Number two, if we rem- are remembering that God has made a way for us. And number three, in looking back, we see his faithfulness. And so it gives us the ability to cling to the promises still to come knowing they're true, like like knowing them in the same way that Isaiah writes them as if they've already happened, like knowing them to be reality. And you go, awesome, except I don't feel that. How do I know? Like, I, come on. Well, to the people of Israel in that day, God said, okay, I'll give you a sign. Isaiah 7 verse 14 says this, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. In that it says, here's the sign that's coming. Um, There's going to be a miraculous birth. There's going to be this virgin born. We're going to call him Emmanuel. Um, He's going to be acquainted with poverty. Curds and honey was the food of a peasant at that time. And it's, he's going to be able to refuse all the evil that you couldn't say no to. And he's going to be able to choose good all the times that we couldn't. And he's going to earn the righteousness that he can give us that we might be reunited and have peace and harmony with God once more. That's the sign, Israel. Well, church, it happened. It happened. And here's the crazy thing. As we go on in Genesis chapter 3, and I I meant to actually read some more of it with you, but I'll just summarize it for you. At the end of it, there's this really sad deal that takes place even after all the curse. It says, first of all, that God made a skin covering for Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness. So that, that means that for the first time, they watched animals be killed. Animals they had taken care of. They watched animals die. Blood shed 
so that a covering can be made for them to hide now this new shame and nakedness that they have, which obviously points to our spotless lamb, Jesus. But then there's this really sad end where it says, God himself says, okay, now that they're in this broken state, we we can't allow them to continue to eat from the tree of life anymore. And so they're expelled from the Garden of Eden. And it says that a cherubim is set outside the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword that waves back and forth to make sure that they couldn't return to eat of that tree. And I'm telling you this, that tree is what we've been longing for ever since. That, that life, that meaningness, that, that idea that like things will last, that there's not this inevitable decay or disappointment or death on the other end of that. And the good news is, is that because of the work of Jesus Christ, and I don't want to spoil too much of the end of the Bible. You should read it on your own. It's really good. But at the end of the Bible, it says this. It talks about the fact that there's no more tree of knowledge of good and evil, but there is the tree of life. And you know what's not there? There's no cherubim. There's no sword. There's nothing keeping us away from that deep longing and that life that we've always had. So this Christmas, we have opportunity to go. And I'm I'm not telling you guys all this just, you know, to bum you out for Christmas. I should say that, right? Yeah, I don't want you guys going into Christmas going, what's the point? It's going to be over anyway. No, it's to understand that all of this points us to that which ultimately satisfied and that Jesus Christ is coming again. And you go, well, how do I know? I don't feel it. He gave us a sign too. That sign is communion. He said to us, hey, I want you to eat of this bread and drink of this cup until I come again. And in this, we get to come to the table and we get to do exactly what Advent describes. We get to look back at the fulfilled promises of Jesus Christ and use that to understand that no matter how dark a season of life we might be in right now, there's hope coming that is certain that is as certain as if it's already happened. So we're going to sing now. We're going to worship, but the communion table's open. I know normally we do communion like we do all at the same time. Don't do that. The table's open. You can come, receive the elements, and then I want you to stand and sing and worship God. I want you to think even about the words of these specific songs that we're singing in light of what we looked at. And I want you to allow, and I mean this not in a cheesy way, like this that holiday feeling of hope. I want you to allow that to just flow through you, but knowing where that hope really lies and worship. Amen. Father, may you minister to your people as we minister to you. May you bless us, Lord, with this reminder of this meal with you, Jesus. And may we worship you with joy and adoration that you deserve for you are, you are our savior, our king, our wonderful counselor, our friend. In Jesus' name. If you'd like to have a meal with Jesus, the communion table is now open. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel. That mourns in lonely exile here Until the Son of God appears Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel
shall come to Come to the 